Do you remember that Drake song where for the music video, he's getting rebar mitzvah? <laughs> no, I really wish I did. Lil Wayne is there and he's having a great time, but this is real. Anyways, I was trying to think of appropriate quotes as we come back to our conversation on anxiety. And instead, all I came up with was, do you love this shit? Are you high right now? Do you ever get nervous? Are you single? You think the people you're with are with you? And I say, hell yeah, hell yeah, fucking right, fucking right. All right. Yeah, that actually is the loop that just runs through my head all day too. So I'm glad you said that, JJ. That's my anxiety checklist to see how I'm doing. I just like try and like- Step back and ask these questions. Like, no, I don't love this shit. I am not high right now. I do get nervous, but I'm not single. Okay, cool. Now I'm centered. Hell yeah. So for those of you who haven't listened to last week's episode, what we're saying is probably still going to make a lot of sense. But last week, we started a conversation about anxiety in and out of chess, mostly in. And it ended up being super long and we're coming back to it this week, but wanted to have a little bit of a segue since somebody didn't forget to record and upload the intro this week. Are you trying to insinuate that I'm responsible for that, JJ? No, I'm trying to insinuate that I'm responsible. Okay, that's fair. Perfect. One, one. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast. The only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are are we we like like this? this? Yeah. What you said there that I loved was the idea of don't demonize your thoughts or falling into that spiral. That's something I'll see a lot where I'll see people say something like, I realized that asking the question, how do I stop their attack might not be the right question because I wasn't sure if their attack was real. And then I didn't know what question to ask instead, which is also fine. And that's awesome awareness, right? And so the next thing is, so then I just panicked and played a defensive looking move because I at least knew how to address the attack. Even though I just said, I don't believe in their attack. At least I knew that this move addresses this thing that I didn't believe in. And otherwise I have to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. And then so I just played the move. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be the beginner and you can let me know if I'm on the right track or not. I wonder if a place to start would be like, okay, you've assessed that the way you're thinking about it actually doesn't seem to work. And you've also recognized that you don't know what to ask or think about next. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the next step there would be look at the position and almost just start listing things that you do know. You can look Mm -hmm. at the position and ask yourself the question, what's my strongest piece? What's my weakest piece? What's my opponent's strengths? What are their weaknesses? You can almost just start more concretely assessing what those are and kind of see what unfolds from that. And I'm kind of asking that because there is a similar strategy that comes from DBT, which is dialectic behavioral therapy, that in those moments where we feel super unregulated and we don't really know how to respond in a situation, we just start listing facts. And they literally, we are sticking to the concrete. What can you report on based on one of your five senses? So if the sentence is, my sister-in-law is a that is not a fact. I can't see that with my eyes. But you can describe her actions that made you describe her that way. She ran my dog over with her car. Okay. Heard that loud and clear. So I get that in chess, it's different, right? JJ, nope, like- Not really. Oh my God, I can't wait. Okay. Yeah. Respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. In this case, where we're imagining that somebody's like, well- I thought that the attack needed to be addressed, but now I don't believe in their attack. But now I don't know where to go to pause and say, hey, that's great news. You thought that maybe this position called for a defender die, and you just established that it doesn't. You don't have to defend their moves and their real threat on your king in order to stay in the game. So first of all, take a deep breath, right? Like that's a relief. You are in a less dire position than you thought you were. It turns out you have more freedom and flexibility to just play your game. Then when it comes to the objective stuff, this is where I think it's exactly what you're describing, where it's going to be less sensory experiences or it's going to be less like it's going to be the exact same thing where a lot of terms people use to talk about chess are judgment-laden terms. 
you know, like, what do I think about the position rather than what is literally the position? Exactly. So you'll see this when people talk about, they'll use things that are technical chess terms too, when they're doing this. So for instance, a bad bishop really might mean a bishop mm, that's on the same color example. as the, their own pawns in the center. That's such a good example. You can look at the board and say, okay, my pawns are on darker light squares and my bishop is on darker light square. So you've yeah. you've clocked that. Yeah. But that is the next step, right? To say it's a bad bishop. Yeah. So I love that distinction. Or even if like according to some technical jargon, that's what it means to be a potential. bad bishop. Just follow it out. So you could say, okay, yeah. Even if I know that according to whoever... That's what it means for it to be a bad bishop, parentheses, technical jargon sense. That doesn't mean it's a bad bishop, parentheses, judgment sense. For instance, okay, let's see. While it's on the same color as these pawns, does it still have lines? Does it still attack stuff? Does it still defend stuff? So mobility, attack, and defense in the literal sense of could I move it onto a square where it defends pawns who otherwise aren't defended? Could I move it to a square where it attacks pawns who are otherwise undefended? Could I move it at all? Those are three questions that could be yes, 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 even for a bad bishop that would give me a much, much different judgment than a bad bishop where the answers are no, no, no. And those are concrete questions. Exactly. Just look at the board. Where can this bishop go? Exactly. Is it protected? Is it defended? You're back in the concrete. I love that. So that seems like a good strategy for people to kind of have in their back pocket. When I feel lost, I almost need to stop evaluating so rigorously because mm -hmm. I've recognized that I feel lost. Like yes. the evaluation is not, not going to, yeah, if you tongue. could evaluate, you wouldn't feel lost. Yeah. Exactly. Now, what can I lean on? I'm literally just going to look at the pieces on the board and start making observations. Uh, that blows my mind. And just right away, JJ, like it just feels so useful to me. Yeah. And just to help people out, I can throw in other evaluative terms. I guess what I'm trying to flag is that some of these evaluative terms are just like good and bad. But some of the evaluative terms double as pieces of jargon that if you only mm -hmm. use them without evaluating them, without like trying to spell them out in more rigorous detail become more evaluative than you realize. So for instance, this plan is too slow, their attack is too fast. If what you mean is it takes me five turns to execute this idea and they have a plan that can be executed in four, then you have correctly and objectively said your plan is too slow. If what you mean is it takes you five turns and you don't want to take five turns, you've done something evaluative that is not concrete. Love it. But there is such a difference there exactly. because now you can start asking different questions. Okay, could I make this plan happen faster? Is is there a prophylactic yeah. move I can make to thwart their counterplay that actually five moves is all right for me? So you can actually start mm -hmm. thinking in more creative ways. And that is so fundamental to the work that we do with ACT specifically is to recognize when there's rigidity in thinking and help our clients move into that space of psychological flexibility. It yeah. really is the same thing. So if you start with, well, this plan's too slow, and in your head, unexpressed to yourself, the idea is because it would take five turns, but you haven't even really counted them. And you can turn that into, well, how many turns would it take? Five. And then, and then you can ask questions like, could I make it take fewer turns? What's the fastest thing they could do? Could I make it take more turns? Yeah, that's way different than just like, well, it felt too slow. Moving on. Too slow. Right. Uh -huh. So now I'm going to think about the next thing. You know, sometimes the heuristic is helpful. Like I'm sure grandmasters mm -hmm. can glance at a position and say too slow, but just couching this in the context that we've already identified, this is for when you feel lost. Like you've already admitted, I cannot look at the board and intuit this uh, definitely feels right or wrong. So I think there's a lot of value here. Yeah. Yeah. But we, there's going to be things that we just don't have as much of a sense of. So we gave the mm -hmm. example earlier of quote, like developing a piece versus moving it. So developing is another technical term that can totally be used just as evaluative. So you could say Absolutely. like, well, my I'm playing cautiously because my opponent has a lead in development. Well, if you can turn that into asking the questions of how those pieces have moved, why they are more attacking or appropriately developed than your pieces, then yeah, you've made a correct assessment of the position that can be helpful. But if you just say, well, I can't do anything risky because I'm behind in development or I need to castle because I'm behind in development without first establishing what makes their pieces developed rather than moved. But just to kind of zoom out a little bit, the thing that I really want to hit on is how difficult it is to do 
every single one of those steps when we are in a heightened state. Hell yeah. So when you are experiencing that anxiety, which actually might be caused by the problem that we're sort of presenting and might be, I feel Mm -hmm. totally lost. And now my anxiety is so high that I'm actually not thinking in the ways that you just described so well, JJ. And I feel like you've given us examples of that on the pod before. Yes. Almost said I felt really dissociated. My stress was high. I kind of blacked out. Yeah. And I don't, I barely even remember what moves I was playing. I definitely was not thinking in this very kind of present and in this more controlled way. Right. Yeah. And this also is going to tie in to another conversation that we've had more than a few times, which is about time (laughs) and blitz and clocks and stuff, where especially when I've I've, I've talked about blocking out specifically in the context of being in like extreme time pressure, like under a minute with no increment. But that makes total sense, right? Because you're getting to the point of the game where you can't actually regulate by asking these questions if both if if the moves are coming out so fast or maybe can't is too strong but it becomes much more difficult when you're in extreme time pressure i see julia that you have pushback i just got really excited because i know it's months later but i finally came up with a really good joke about clocks oh yo let's hear it i know it's about time is that the joke is that the joke (laughs) yeah A plus, Thanks. gold star, best in. WD I only Fair. do this to make JJ happy. My brain does not work this. She's way. referring to the podcast. <laughs> it's because JJ pays me the big bucks. I have a big juicy salary over here at Chessfields Inc. You do unfettered access to me. No, unfettered. No. Unfettered. All right, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write that down. Okay, fettered. fettered unfettered. Yeah. You were saying okay, more good. generally when people are like, well. Why do why do I have to play slow games or why do I have to play 90-30s when I train instead of, you know, 45-5 is pretty slow. Like, why does it have to be so slow? Well, the people asking that probably have also been thinking about what we've been saying and these sorts of questions of God, but not only are those questions sound hard, but it sounds like it would take me a long time to do that. No shit. Yeah, exactly. That is the entire fucking point for playing slow chess is how are you going to get truly better at asking these questions quickly and not having to go all the way down your checklist and whatnot, or having to take a few minutes to recenter yourself to even realize that you're assuming something about the position that you need to adjust. If you don't give yourself lots of opportunities to play so slowly, that you're and actually to able that. to practice that. Exactly. Yes. And what I love too, to tie it all the way back, is sort of recognizing that that in itself is an anxiety provoking experience. And we can understand why people do not gravitate towards this idea of you need to slow down in a way that feels uncomfortable for you and think in a way that you're not used to. And you might be watching your clock tick down and that doesn't feel great for your very short-term goal of playing quickly or finding the best move right Mm -hmm. right now in this instance. So you almost have to have a little bit of delayed gratification, use your higher order reasoning skills to say, this is going to help my chess overall. And I really am going to practice this different way of thinking even though it feels uncomfortable and slower to me. And just to report that I have a lot of students who have really overcome that barrier and are now like, talk about delayed gratification or like, I totally realized that I was in this position where I started going down this rabbit hole of calculating the first thing that jumped out to me. But then I just stopped and said, wait, is that forced? Well, if I ignore it, do they have a follow-up? No. Oh crap, I can ignore it. What can I do instead? Oh, three of my pieces could be better. And suddenly, instead of being 10 minutes behind on the clock and a 50% chance of miscalculating a risky move, I'm 10 minutes ahead on the clock and playing simple moves. And now they're my opponents in time trouble and they're calculating a lot of needless stuff. And then they just blunder and I won without even having to work very hard because I didn't let myself go down those holes. And to see the excitement of I actually caught myself from is like that like that is something that is super gratifying because it's not even just your chest is improving but really just like your your presence of mind exactly and that was that's literally the first step in what you and i and jj have identified is really useful here is the noticing and that is the foundation of the therapy that i do every single day 
the first thing that has to happen is we have to notice. Yeah. And if we aren't aware of what's going on, I can give you literally the best therapy skills in the toolbox. But if you don't know therapy that you premium. need them, you're not going to use them. And that kind of goes back to my original point too, which is also if you're in a state of really heightened anxiety, mm. it's really hard to use these skills. And I imagine that holds true for trust, JJ. Yeah. You can know all these things cognitively and intellectually, but when you're in that really aroused state, it's going to be harder to implement them. And this is where some earlier conversations we've had on the podcast about like even just doing the five senses exercise as ways to kind of like recenter yourself can be so important to just say like, okay, if I realize that I'm in this very anxious state, then I need to find a way to kind of take a step back to even just be able to start asking some of these questions or to get that level of distance or awareness. And I'm wondering yeah. what what are some other advice you have for people who are in the moment experiencing that? Yeah, definitely. And this... I know you said, oh, this is so import- important, important, important. I know you already said that this is really important. And in therapy, I might even say, this is critical. This is mm. everything. So in therapy, we talk about the window of tolerance. And if you are in a state of really extreme anxiety or stress, we're going to kind of refer to that as being in a state of hyper arousal. It can look like a lot of things, but that is when you're sympathetic nervous system is turned on full gear and you are not inside that window anymore. You're in hyperarousal. There's also hypoarousal. And that's kind of what JJ has described as that dissociation. It's really when that parasympathetic nervous system is in overdrive. And this is also a stress response. And it's when we are not engaging in that really active or reactive type of thinking. So if we are in either one of those stages, we consider our clients to be out of the window of tolerance. And when this happens, either in therapy, in the room, or when our clients are at home, we are sort of recognizing nothing useful can happen. No therapy can happen until we return back inside of that window. Mm. And the goal becomes solely to regulate to come back into the window of tolerance. And I wonder how this could apply to chess because I imagine there is a state of arousal, which is really adaptive Yeah, and and it could actually help our performance. And I imagine everyone kind of feels that adrenaline. It's useful for athletes. I imagine it can be useful in chess. And I think what's key here is to have people sort of recognize, when am I moving away from a stage of sort of an optimal or at least not harmful arousal into Mm. hyper arousal? And that's going to differ for everybody. But I think that people can start to recognize that state by some of the things that you've described. So when we're in that state, some of the things that you can look for that will be different than just a state of normative or even optimal arousal is you're going to have more of that emotional reactivity. So you'll feel that go up and you might feel something like anxiety, stress, fear, anger, frustration. There's lots of ways that can show up. You're also going to notice more of the racing thoughts. And in that sense, it's not going to be sort of like the logical sequence or even the gut intuitive sequence that JJ described earlier. So you're going to kind of have that emotional overwhelm. And interesting, also in states of hyperarousal, we see more impulsivity. (laughs) So I'm sure that everyone has experienced that in chess too, when you're playing that blitz game and you know you see that scary move and you just react so quickly in a way that that maybe feels defensive. Or that slow game. I can't tell you the number of times I've had students or seen people online complain and be like, and the worst part was... I made that impulsive losing move in 20 seconds with 30 minutes on my clock. Exactly. And what always kills me, JJ, are those times where then immediately after I make the move, I look and I see that the threat wasn't real and the position mm-hmm. was equal or close to equal. I mean, this this happens to me. But once or twice? <laughs> it's happened before. It won't well, happen again, though. I've solved it, it by yeah, describing the it. problem. Well, this is an appropriate <laughs> thing to bring up for October, though, because it's, it's sometimes referred to as the phenomenon of seeing ghosts. Mm, love that. Say more. Oh, just the idea of I was responding to a threat or a sequence that in some way just wasn't real. It was a figment of my imagination. And the idea of the ghost in particular is that it scared me. And talking about how what will often happen is when you feel a genuinely like a fear response, it's going to be much harder to stop and say, well, let me double check that. 
because it seemed like on some level, it sounded like that knight that just came off the board in this variation came back and forked me later in the variation. That's not the presence of mind you have during a fear response. You have like, well, shit, can't let that happen. I know, definitely. And so I wonder what you'll think about this, JJ. I'm not saying this confidently as if I know this to be a fact or to be true, but I'm sort of wondering in a sense, an instinct that I have is that if this is something that we are practicing, Mm -hmm. so if you are starting to get more in the habit of thinking about your thoughts in this way, like getting that distance and not being super fused with your thoughts and just sort of noticing that your thoughts are even happening, like I said, This feels lightning fast sometimes. So for our listeners at home, the next time you feel your anxiety go up or you feel any sort of intense emotional reaction, you can practice this and sort of pause and say, okay, what really triggered this? What was the thought underneath that? And that might seem really obvious, but sometimes what we do in therapy is this exercise called a thought ladder. So the first thought that comes to the surface is, is actually almost never the really anxiety provoking thought. So let's use your example, JJ, you're running late with the dog. And one of the first thoughts that you described, okay, vet is 45 minutes late now. What was the next thought that you had? This ruins my plans for the day. Okay. This ruins my plans for the day. So for someone whose plans for the day were, I'm going to go home and sit on my couch and watch Netflix, they might be disappointed, but they actually might not feel really intense anxiety. So there was a reason why that felt especially anxiety provoking to you. So what about that, JJ, do you feel like kind of contributed to the anxiety? The next step was that I was rushing to meet a 12 o'clock time appointment with another person. Right. Okay. So let's say that 12 o'clock appointment with another person is with a salesman who's trying to get you to subscribe to their LDS Mormon magazine. You're like, why did I even agree to that? All right. I'm I'm not even going to cancel. I'm just not going to show up. You might not feel a lot of anxiety. Another kind of ghosting. (laughs) Ghosts abound in our October special. So what was the thought underneath that that made that feel especially anxiety provoking? The meeting was with Julia, somebody whose time I respect and with the amount of work she has and the family she has, somebody whose time I do not want to waste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what would it mean to waste someone's time that you really care about? To have them sitting there wondering why I'm not there at the time I told them and we triple checked would work for us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to let my friend down. Yes. And she's going to be furious. I don't even care about that, but I I think it's just more... With the paw and storm off. Okay, no, this is useful though. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily like I'm afraid that the hypothetical friend, what did you say her name was? Julia? Would be mad? Okay, yeah, correct me. What feels more accurate? That whether she would be upset or not or express it or not, I wanted her to have this time or have have the full time to do this thing that we both care about. And I didn't want her to either have less time to do this thing or less time to do the other things that matter. And I feel responsible for taking that away from her. So this, it's, it's more more an internal guilt than a fear of, your rea- of her reaction. Yeah. So I don't want to let my friend down. And, and also, like, I don't want to sabotage our efforts towards this project that we really care about. Mm-hmm. So I liked the word that you used there, guilt. Yeah. So we we got somewhere and we can do a lot more, which we won't because <laughs> we are on the pod. But you can see, JJ, even in two minutes, what that ladder looks like. The first thought was, I'm late. The vet <laughs> is running late. And some people stop there. And that yeah. feels so anxiety provoking. And they don't do the deeper dive. But then we can actually start to assess, okay, what are some of the real triggers here? And it really is this idea in this case of like that sense of social obligation or dedication to the project mm-hmm. and the guilt that comes in if you feel like you're actually not doing the things in service of the friend or of the project. And so you and I potentially in therapy could talk about catastrophic thinking, like, oh, if we were late on this one episode. Does that throw the podcast into shambles? In our case, yes. Yes. Um, And we would have had to just shut the whole thing down. So I'm glad you made it. (laughs) We've never missed an episode, people. So that was really adaptive thinking. I was about to literally flip the table over. Or we could explore some of the people pleasing and some of that sense of social obligation or even like the levels of attachment there. Not necessarily in JJ's case, but in general, we could start to explore, okay, do 
relationships feel fragile to you? What -hmm. happens if your friend does get upset or you do disappoint them? What shows up for you? So some people are like, yeah, well, you know, I'm usually on time and whatever. And if they get mad, I'll say sorry and everything's fine. (laughs) More frequently or for a lot of people, there is a sense of stress and anxiety there. And we don't Mm want to demonize that. That's Mm. very useful. Anxiety can be very pro-social. So if someone comes in and they have no anxiety around other people and their reactions, we actually think of that as sort of psychopathy. And it's actually not pro-social and it's not adaptive. It really is about finding when thoughts are useful. It's very Mm. contextual. It kind of all comes back. But this was really just an example of how we can start to identify what really are those thoughts that are happening contributing to the anxiety. And I I do see some similarities there where with the chest, like maybe it's not to necessarily identify where the anxiety is coming from, although maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, what do I think is a threat? And let me actually pause and not be impulsive Mm -hmm. and assess if it's a threat or not. Mm -hmm. But in order for us to do that eventually, JJ. I want to circle back to this idea of we we have to be in the window of tolerance. If we are totally agitated and in a state of hyperarousal, it's really hard and almost impossible to do a lot of this at a deep level. So it, it comes back to this idea of sort of recognizing what those triggers are and like sort of what those patterns are. And the reason that is useful is we want to start to make sense of sort of what is touching those places in us that create that sense of reactivity. We all really have those soft spots. And I think in the context of chess, it's really about increasing your own awareness of when the temperature is rising. Mm. Once you're out of the window of tolerance, tough luck. That's a little trickier. And we definitely can talk about ways to regulate and come back in. I actually think it's more useful to, to think about when the thermometer is rising and sort of do things proactively or preemptively to keep yourself in the window. So it really, this was a beautiful example that JJ just illustrated. So my original point was if we kind of get into this habit, if if you in your life can recognize when that thermometer is going up for you and you're having that stress response of pausing and examining your own thoughts. In therapy, we call this self as a observer. Mm-hmm. Maybe at first glance, it doesn't sound like it answered your question, JJ, about like what skills can we bring in to actually regulate? But this is actually a really useful skill Uh, uh because what happens is when we start observing our thoughts rather than just reacting to them, we're now using a different part of our brain. Like that reaction, that stress response is very limbic. It's really these emotional Mm. regions and these subcortical and more automatic and reflexive neural responses. Once we start to observe our thoughts, we are automatically doing something that is very useful, which is getting distance from the thought. ACT is really centered around this idea that if we can get distance from our thoughts, it's almost always useful, but especially when our thoughts specifically are pretty maladaptive or anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. We want to get that distance so we can start to assess with those prefrontal cortical regions that do things like calculating, planning, judging, thinking clearly, and not reacting in an emotional way, which might not actually reflect the reality in front of us, but rather is responding to the anxiety. So think that that is kind of like twofold useful. If people can kind Mm -hmm. of get in that habit, it'll be easier to do that. So I think we've identified how difficult it might be like when you're sitting at the board to get that space. So Mm -hmm. I really think that this is a skill that people can practice, not even when they're playing chess, like literally in your life. And this is just a great emotional regulation tool. So if anyone out there really does struggle with something like chronic anxiety, feel free to... <laughs> and not us. <laughs> but feel free to use that technique. Notice when anxiety is happening, and maybe for the first time, actually don't resist it. Don't demonize it. Let yourself feel that sensation and just start to pay attention. We almost want to approach this with a spirit of curiosity mm-hmm. and follow that thought ladder. Be curious and see what's underneath that. So not only will that help you see some patterns, okay, this is tapping into something deeper that now I can actually process. And that's something that you can do in therapy, but it's also just building that muscle of noticing. And then you can use that at the chessboard. I love this. And I'm going to bring this next fucking level. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Wait, no, no, sorry. No, hyper arousal. We got to come back down. 
<laughs> Sorry, I got too excited. Too Sorry, I was like a dog wagging my tail. All oh. right, all right. I feel all fine. Right. Are we good? You over it? Okay. So when it comes to practicing this kind of noticing, or the th- if the thought of being able to have this presence of mind while you're playing sounds impossible, yeah, what Julia is saying makes tons of sense that it's something that will take lots of practice and doesn't even have to be when you're playing chess. But one way that you can integrate this practice into your chess practice, annotating your games. Oh, this, yeah. Yeah, right? This, yeah. Is, this is your fucking diary. Your annotations are not a place where you defend what you were thinking or dismiss what you were thinking by saying, I just missed this one move. Ha ha. Oops. You're, yes. That's the surface level. Yeah. yeah. The annotations are where you come in and say, okay, let's see. And this is why trying to do this or at least jotting down notes that can come into your annotation close to when you played it are important. Because if I tried to do this for a game I played months ago, I won't remember my thought process. And I certainly won't remember the things I struggled with the most. Maybe I'll remember a couple of things that stood out to me. But if I play a game and then later that day or the next morning I sit down to annotate it, I can probably identify, okay, here I remember this was the only move I considered. And I realize now that I didn't even ask why this was the only move I considered. Here I remember choosing between this move and two other moves that had the same goal of meeting this threat. Looking at it now, I thought that I asked the question of why this threat was real. And I realized that the variation I gave myself in my head was littered with holes. And we could actually take that even one layer deeper, which is to say, okay, now I'm noticing that I didn't ask that question or I didn't think about the position in this way. Now you can ask yourself why. Why? That's the meta conversation. Where was the gap in my thinking? Was there an assumption I was making that precluded me from asking the question? Or what was that hole in my thinking? And again, that might require, you know, working with a coach or maybe someone could kind of parse that out for themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think that that is kind of tapping into what we were talking about from the psychological perspective of noticing the patterns. That might actually help you patch up some of the holes once you recognize that you have them. Especially if you realize, like, what I'd be especially interested in is, are there things where you didn't even ask that question at certain points, but then at other points, you totally did ask that question. For instance, maybe I'm really good at asking the question, well, is that a real threat when it comes to attacks on my king and I calculate Mm. through the attack? But then the second they threaten to double my pawns, I'm like, well, I don't want doubled pawns without saying, okay, first of all, does the line force doubled pawn? Second of all, what compensation do I get for those? Was the piece they lost good or bad? I'm really good at asking this question when I'm responding to this provocation of like, well, I don't want a weakened king side, so let's make sure that it weakens the king side. But then with double pawns, it's almost more of a knee jerk, or maybe it's the opposite, right? And I knee jerk defend against an attack, but I'm way more reflective on like more abstract positional stuff. Or maybe it's even more nuanced than that. And if I feel like I've been attacked for the past 20 moves and my opponent's outplaying me, then I'm more inclined to just trust that their attack is there without checking it. And if I've been kicking my opponent's ass, I'm more inclined to double and triple check that their attack has anything real. And so in the case, it might be the exact same thing, but when a 2300 does it, I just forget to ask the question, but when an 1800 does it against me, I remember to ask the question. Like, And that's all really interesting data that you can get out of this sort of annotation. No, but this is such a good analogy because I think that one thing that might be happening that people are not really recognizing is that there is an automatic, and I'm even going to use the word emotional response to something like in your example of JJ, the double mm. pawns. It's like, oh, I bristle at that. I see yeah. the double pawns and I have this mode of thinking, this automated thought pattern that that is a threat that's bad for me. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm reacting rather than looking at the position in front of me and assessing, okay, is the doubled pawns worth the cost here? Mm-hmm. I- I'm mm-hmm. discounting something and that's why I missed the question. So this ties in so perfectly. It really is is that stress response, that emotional response, rather than looking at the position in front of us, which is kind of a concept we keep coming back to because I think it's such a good one. Mm -hmm. So I love what you said, JJ, that 
one of the ways to recognize that I'm having these holes in my game and these lapses of judgment to be kind of harsh, I'm missing the right question to ask or I'm missing the right assessment of the position is because I'm sort of operating on this faulty wiring and I have these automatic patterns of reacting that are not actually helpful in every context on the chessboard. And what I love is when I see annotated games from students that might say, okay, I ruled this out because it put the knight on the rim, the knight could get taken, and then I had doubled isolated h-pawns. The computer I now see says this is the best move. I ruled this out because of a faulty assumption, and I can't for the life of me understand why it doesn't apply here. Can you explain it to me? I'm like, that's like, okay, great. Now, maybe the answer is yes, here's what you're missing. And maybe the answer is no, this is kind of a fluke. And you shouldn't be beating yourself up according to this. Like the computer is actually, the computer's found something cool, but it's not actually useful versus, oh yeah, I can absolutely tell you how you're misapplying the heuristic and you're actually able to learn from that because you've caught yourself misapplying it and said, I don't know how to correct this, but I want to know how to correct this. Right. But without that deep analysis and without that annotation, none of those insights or observations happen. Like you actually need not only the data, but you got to analyze the data, right? Exactly. And that's really what that process becomes. And the other piece that I'm going to really hammer home is how you described it as a practice. Mm -hmm. That means that you don't just annotate a couple of games every once in a while. If Mm -hmm. you you can, I mean, we're not saying you need to do this deep dive, but if you want to build the muscle and sort of rewire these automatic patterns of thinking, you actually do need that repetition. It is a muscle that you build and you have to practice it. Yeah. And what you find, or at least speaking for myself, what I've found is that when I'm more regularly in that practice, like I'm if I'm doing like chess do- dojo mm. training program games with members of my cohort, they're all yeah. about exactly what we're talking about here, that I find that it actually becomes easier not just to do those annotations, but it actually becomes easier in the moment to catch myself having the sorts of thoughts yeah. that previously only I only caught in the annotation. Or it becomes easier exactly. at the very least yes. to remember two hours after a game that I was having those thoughts because I'm like more attuned to them. And that's, I think, yes. the whole point of the practice. Yeah. I literally had someone say this to me in therapy today. She said, it's so cool. I'm just noticing things that I just never would have even thought to notice a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she was, you know, it was cool. She was really hyping me up. Like therapy is awesome. And this has really improved my life in all these ways. But I kind of wanted to tell her, you know, it's nothing special. There's no (laughs) secret sauce. Uh I just have asked you questions that brought it to your attention. And now the more that you notice it, the more that you notice it. That's how our brains work. And you've learned to Um, ask those questions yourself. Totally. So once you know to look for it, you're going to see it everywhere. I mean, I'm sure everyone can think of these examples. There's a real psychological effect behind this where once you notice something once, you're going to notice it everywhere. So this happened to me when I was pregnant. I started seeing pregnant women everywhere. (laughs) And I was talking to my mother-in-law and I was like, I must have gotten pregnant during a pregnancy boom and everyone is pregnant. And I was talking to someone about this in my program. They're like, no, this is a psychological effect. That is salient (laughs) to you now because you've noticed it in yourself and you are going to see it everywhere because that's how our brains are attuned to pick up stimuli in our environment. It would be really unhelpful if we noticed every single visual stimulus in front of us. Our brains are going to pick up specific things based on their salience. Mm. So that's what's happening here. As you do the analysis and you literally feel the emotional pain of that blunder (laughs) or of that miscalculation, you are now kind of hardwiring a new thing to notice and it will feel easier, JJ. That's a real effect. Oh, oh, and I want to add to that to say, that this also ties into this idea we were talking earlier of how those pattern recognitions that we develop can lead us astray is our brains are doing that whether we want them to or not and whether yes. we are practicing this or not. The question isn't just, are you developing pattern recognition? The question is, are you trying to take some sort of control over how you yes. develop the oh pattern recognition? Otherwise, you end yes. up in those examples of, well, I've been hit by so many bishop takes f sevens that now my brain is reacting to whenever that move is legal instead of figuring out what the <laughs> pattern is or like I'm always playing H3 because I've been back committed so many times or I'm never playing H3 because they've used a 
whatever the fishing hook sacrificed so many times and it's like well those are terrible patterns and it's because you're not doing this sort of analysis and getting to the why behind why was h3 bad here why was it here that instead your brain is filling in the gaps the best it can it's it's trying it's trying its best yes oh my god this is exactly what i sound like in therapy yes because context is everything we have to return to that because that's going to be so important in chess when we're talking about assessing the position in front of us and this is such a perfect analogy when we're talking about the opposite of that self as observer Mm -hmm. we sometimes call that self as content that's when we're in the swirl of the emotions and the thoughts and they feel like reality on twitter (laughs) Self as content is the bishop is pointing at H7 and I'm doomed and I'm now panic responding. It's like, okay, I'm an 800 and I just saw two queen H5 and I'm literally shaking. So that's self as content and that can be really unhelpful in the situations we've just described. The opposite of self as content in the framework of ACT is known as self as context. And we can literally think of the self as context in the situation you've just described, JJ, where we can look and say, that bishop is not a threat. Look at my beautiful, stunning knight on F6. There's nothing happening here. Yeah. So context is key. And I love how beautifully these things connect. And it shouldn't surprise me because these principles really do make sense. But it's just cool to see how they line up. I think, yeah, I think so. And I've, I've thought before about how it has felt like a lot of work I've done in therapy around my anxiety has been reflected back to me in my chest practice and or like my chest improvement. And this has been so awesome for kind of putting into words the way in which this sort of reflexivity and reflectivity within chess playing can be a microcosm of the sorts of skills that we're always trying to learn and grow on in other aspects. Yeah, totally. It's not in this isolated chamber. If you're seeing those modes and patterns of thinking in your chess, they're they're probably happening all over the place. And that's okay. We We all have these automatic patterns of thinking. And it really is just about sort of taking stock and towards your own goals really deciding what serves you and what doesn't. But we can't do any of that if we don't notice. And then even if we do notice and have all the skills, we can't do any of that if we're dysregulated. So that's kind of another piece of the puzzle. Uh, So I kind of touched on it, but once you get out of the window of tolerance, it can be harder to sort of regulate and get yourself back into the window and not impossible. And we can talk really quickly about ways to do that beyond what we've already sort of brought to the podcast. But something that I do recommend for people that is easier is just to kind of notice when the temperature is rising, Mm -hmm. notice when the stress response is starting. And so when you feel the thermometer going up, it's easier to kind of cut that off at the knees or do some of these strategies before you're outside of the window. And I think some people are really not in tune to when that anxiety is really manifesting until it really does hit that 8, 9, 10 out of 10 And then it can be really hard to come back down. And that's something I would love to see documented in annotations. Like, and I have some people who will never talk about that. And I have some people of like, they're good at talking about when they've hit that eight, nine, 10 range. But Mm. if you can talk about like, when did you, first of all, on move one, how did you feel? But then, you know, like, okay, at this point, like, when did it start to elevate? Was it suddenly everything was perfectly fine? And suddenly you're at an eight because of a horrific blunder or miscalculation, or did it feel like a gradual thing? Oh, and look, you were actually already at a six or seven when you made the horrific blunder. Exactly. That's, that's a very different, I, that's a very different conversation than everything was fine until you misclicked OTB. Those are two very different conversations, right? Yeah. So I think that's something too. And so I think really challenging the idea of almost treating these annotations almost as a bit of a feelings journal to shout out our intro. I was totally going to make that joke. That was something that I 100% was thinking this entire time, JJ, was I just want to slip in there that we have been fucking planning this all along. This was a 10-month-long buildup. At the beginning of every episode, we've been asking if you guys are sleeping next to your opening prep and your feelings journal. And you thought that that was just kind of tongue-in-cheek, but this episode was the grand finale to say you need to start an annotation slash feelings journal journal. today and make it a practice. And then we can design a bunch of really stupid covers for them. Oh my God, JJ. 
I'm thinking of one of Bobby Fischer playing chess and it says fascists don't care about your feelings. But then on the back, I want it to be a picture of Eric Rosen holding a mug of tea and it just says, but I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. See? Come on. Come on. This duo. You'd give us money. We can think of anything. So JJ, do you want to spend any time talking about, okay, you feel your thermometer going up. How do you then sort of regulate and bring yourself back down or not that useful? I think that's something that a lot of our listeners would find very useful if you have anything to say there. If you have something easy that you can add in there, that's great. But I think that I liked the direction of maybe viewing this conversation as like, this is the conversation about step one. This is the conversation about noticing I know, I like that and too. building the skills to notice. And we can come back in the future as, yeah. you know, as I practice this and as our listeners practice this, we can check back in later and talk about what to do once we've been noticing and we started to notice and getting better at recognizing when that temperature is rising. But for now, I kind of like the idea of challenging the listeners to not go straight to, well, what do I do about it? But to actually sit in really noticing it. I love that so much. Dude, JJ, I feel like I started this episode thinking like, wow, JJ is the perfect therapy client. And now I'm like, no, JJ would be a great therapist <laughs> oh, be hell great because that is actually exactly how we do this work. We really just start with the noticing and and we avoid diving in too deep to behavior yeah. change. And it yeah. literally is for the reason that you just delineated. And this is actually worth not glossing over because this is essentially how I myself became an ACT therapist, even though the foundation of all my training at Michigan was really in CBT. And that is the difference between those orientations. CBT is all about change. How can I change Mm. those thoughts? How can I get rid of the anxiety? And what I started finding when I worked with my clients is that it straight up didn't fucking work. (laughs) I got really sick of clients who were not getting a lot of relief, even though they were learning lots of skills. So I was working with my clients and they were able to recognize the thought patterns. So for example, JJ, in your case, maybe we would get to the end of the thought ladder and we would say, okay, this is really tapping into a guilt that I feel about letting people down. So CBT might have you take that thought and ask yourself, okay, if I think about this in a non-emotional regulated space, what is the likelihood that this will Mm -hmm. really sabotage my friendship? Or what are the things I could do to repair if my friend is upset? What I started to find was that when I did that exercise with my clients, they could actually do it really well. They're smart, they're intuitive, and they could recognize, okay, that's actually not that likely. I see that this is a cognitive distortion. We Mm -hmm. can label it, we can recognize it, but my anxiety is still at a 10 out of 10. And I started to get to this place where CBT felt like professional gaslighting. It was essentially (laughs) saying, what's the big deal? We've already assessed that this is distorted thinking. Why can't you feel better? Thank you for explaining to me that my anxiety is irrational. That has solved all of my problems. (laughs) Right. And I also started to feel really not okay with trying to get my clients to feel better about things that I wanted to have enough humility to concede that maybe they actually should not feel better about. Yeah. Things like grief and loss and systemic Mm. oppression. Maybe the problem is not my client's reaction to the environment, but actually kind of recognizing, hey, that's real stress. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is worth feeling emotionally about. So what if we can sort of redirect our approach to saying we need to change your thoughts and change your feelings, that's CBT, to saying how can we respond differently to the thoughts and the feelings. So from this framework, I'm actually not trying to get rid of anyone's anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that eventually their anxiety won't shift or they won't have more useful ways of responding to it. Mm -hmm. But really, we're trying to get our clients to notice and to be present and to take stock. And we're adding in this piece of acceptance. And so we can think about what does that stand for that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Acceptance commitment therapy, Mm. (laughs) not actually acceptance change therapy. (laughs) It might seem kind of counterintuitive, but a lot of peace and a lot of emotional regulation can come with that acceptance. But our first step is not about change. So I just really love that you said that, JJ. And I definitely think that we can kind of leave it there. But that actually doesn't leave anybody hanging. The really cool news is that even these steps that we've already laid out of noticing, of taking inventory of your thoughts and kind of following that thought ladder, of noticing where anxiety shows up in your body, these things are actually really regulating. As I've already described, once we're acting in this state of cognition where it's self as context, 
we're actually inherently and automatically getting distance from the thought, which is a regulating process. So you guys can try this at home. The next time you feel your anxiety going up, there's this really cool activity that I do, which comes more from DBT, but I just have my clients describe where in your body do you feel the anxiety? And some people have actually never really done this before, but there's a really cool effect. I have my clients, rather than try to make that feeling go away, so we're not going to do deep breathing, we're not going to do five senses, I want you to actually focus on that area of your body where you feel the anxiety. I want you to really feel it and tap into that. Put all of your focus into that area and describe it to me. And what clients notice is that as you actually draw your attention to that area and feel that sensation, it dissipates. It's really, really cool. So I guess I bring that up because even though we haven't really gone into deep regulation skills, actually just the noticing itself and these muscles we're talking about building will do a lot of that regulation for you. So you might find that it's easier to stay in the window already. I love that. And if you want a challenge round, you can try doing that while playing No Increment Blitz. (laughs) As a therapist, I can't recommend that for your mental health. Everyone should be playing on at least one second increment. Everyone, if if there's no increment, it's Blitz, even if it's game 90. As a therapist, J- I can recommend that. It's it's in J- the J- it's in the uh, it's in the DSM. Yeah, there it is. You the Dirty it. South Manual. It's in the DSM. <laughs> okay, now every time I hear DSM, I'm gonna think of that. Dirty South. And I Mike feel Jones. like you kind of made it sound like you say that as a joke, but no. I happen to know that you believe that deep down in your soul. Oh yeah, if there's no increment, it's blitz. Period. Ninety plus zero. Blitz. Fucking bullet. It's delayed blitz, but it's blitz. <laughs> I mean, that's true, actually. No one can argue with you that. You can play the clock in 90 plus zero much better than you can play the clock in 10 plus five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any more jokes about clocks while we're here? No. I'll just add one more thing, which is mind-blowing, which is my ACT therapist, Mr. Dodgy, told me that it stood for Albin Counter Gambit Theory. Yeah, it does. What did I say before? I have already forgot. Yeah, you're welcome, people. I can't believe this shit is free. Yeah. So this is the last free episode of the podcast ever. Fuck you. And if that made your anxiety go up, it's time to practice some skills, homie. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. (laughs) At Chess Problem. Yeah. Yeah.